Lost time by Marcel Proust underscore. We do not receive wisdom, we must discover it for ourselves, after a journey through the wilderness which no one else can make for us, which no one can spare us. For our wisdom is the point of view from which we come at last to regard the world. The lives that you admire, the attitudes that seem noble to you, have not been shaped by a paterfamilias or a schoolmaster, they have sprung from very different beginnings, having been influenced by evil or commonplace that prevailed around them, they represent a struggle and a victory. Proust is a great teacher. This may sound embarrassingly platitudinous, and yet I find that it is a fact altogether too easily overlooked in our incessant praise, or bemoaning, of his technical achievements as a stylistic innovator. Setting aside for a while the whole issue of innovative narrative technique, which is nonetheless essential to the realization of his thought through literary art, we can appreciate that he has something important to teach us about what it means to be wise, or, in short, a more fully realized human being. He does so by bodying forth through narrative a model, I'd even say, a paradigm, of the process of self-knowledge. In so doing, he becomes an indispensable companion to our own most personal and intimate developmental struggle to compass the manifold, disjointed flux of experience into a coherent, meaningful whole that we can point to as, ourself. As psychologists now recognize, a series of narrative acts, or, acts of meaning, as Jerome Bruner put it, weaves together, one by one, the fabric of our identity. What we are fundamentally is a narrative identity, a carefully demarcated world of meaning to which we cling in the face of the flux. Notice Proust's recurring focus of description, thresholds and borders, doorways and windows, walls and fences, the slow construction of this most fundamental narrative unity that constitutes the real ground of our most mundane awareness is Proust's chosen theme. This fundamental understanding of the self-making self is, paradoxically, the culmination of the pursuit of self-knowledge. And in this, Proust puts his finger on the very pulse of what identity means and can mean in our historical epoch. As Charles Taylor points out in Sources of the Self, the fundamental understanding of an ineradicable and refractory, to the theoretical understanding and its search for pure transparency, poetic element that lies at the heart of all our acts of knowing is foundational for modern thought in general. In short, we make the self we strive to know, necessarily. Deliberations about meanings to entertain and construct form the very ground we stand on in our attempts to reflect and to know self. In this, Proust's narrative art implicitly critiques the foundational move of Western philosophy and intellectual history alike. Namely, Plato's separation between narrative and knowledge, theoria and poiesis, art and philosophy. Proust seems to say that theoria is poetic, and poiesis is theoretical, and reminds us of the more primal etymological sense of narrative, know, to know. In this, he elevates the modern novel to the status of a privileged epistemic instrument and redefines the aim of wisdom. The artist stakes out for himself his own wisdom path distinct from that of the philosopher. The knowledge to be sought is the kind of knowledge we live by. His narrative reenacts those acts of knowing by which we structure a life story and come to affirm a self, and then later, transcend it.
The mainstream of modern thought has, of course, led in the opposite direction. Reductionist mechanism aspires to corner the mind into some ultimate system, a self-made cage of thought, a theory of everything, from which it may never again emerge to see the light of day. Any access to immediate experience must be mediated by said totalizing system. Any experience that does not fit therein is to be explained away. While we manage to keep at bay political totalitarianism as a civilization, intellectual totalitarianism still rules the day as an ever-appetizing lodestar. If we could persuade ourselves to stay in the box we made, we might buy ourselves some semblance of certainty, provided we forget we ourselves have fabricated it. William Barrett, in The Illusion of Technique, outlines this totalizing aspect of modern thought well when he shows how time and again, the great thinkers of modernity are subject to the irresistible temptation to reify the objects of their symbolism, thereby becoming victims of their own language. Proust's approach to the whole question of how we may become wise differs from this mainstream in two ways. First, he avoids becoming a victim of his symbolism by adopting a meta stance vis the vis his own cognitive framings, and second, he validates the adequacy to experience of his methodology by continually touching base with where we actually stand in our most intimate dealings with the world through a close description of detail. I already touched on the first, but essentially, the critical decision here lies in his not assuming transparency and instead foregrounding and scrutinizing the constructive process of knowing a life as it unfolds. There is wisdom in this, for by pretending that our mental filters are transparent to reality, we risk mistaking the specks of dirt on our windowpane for features in the landscape. The fundamental working metaphor Proust operates with here is the magic lantern of the mind. This is introduced early on in the context of one of those childhood revelations that seems to suddenly make clear for us the sense of this strange, shadowy life. The young narrator lying in his bed awaiting sleep while struggling with separation anxiety from his mother, watched the projected fairy tale images of the magic lantern gliding across his walls, furniture, doorknob. The reference to Plato's cave is unmistakable, and yet the wisdom to be found here lies not in peering through to the substantial origin of these shadowy fairy tale forms that float over the surface of our awareness. The umbilical cord to such cosmic orders is severed, for Proust as for so many moderns, we are left floating in a sea of images, that strange, in-between realm where the mind approaches nature but never quite rests in a secure grasp of it. The best lucidity we can hope for comes from an acceptance of the free-floating quality of the magic lantern of our minds. It touches reality only when, as the projected fairy tale images, the form is distorted as it glides over an intruding object, such as the doorknob. The entire rest of the narrative is like a grand cartography of the magic lantern of the mind, and of the unshakable, unsettling, yet poignant sense of a reality that it brings to the heart of even our most lucid daylight experience. In this, Proust has a lot in common with the stripping down of layer upon layer of formal illusion that characterizes Zen meditation. The work is indeed much like a guided meditation manual. The hard-earned lucidity to be found at the culmination of the gathering back together act at the end of the narrative, in time regained, 
is one not of, seeing through, to some architectonic world structure, which must always in the end be a cognitive artifact, endlessly referencing us even as we struggle to wipe ourselves out of our picture. It is instead a lucidity that comes from a comprehensive grasp of the ineradicable stain our filtration systems leave on even the most intimate, seemingly immediate moments. We never stand in the light of day. It is a scary realization, but an unshakable one, and one that peers at the very heart of the human condition. We always stand in the shadow of our own form, and of our limited capacity for realization. Our relation to reality must be understood, and more fully realized, by incrementally beating against our walls, at last coming to make peace with them, and in so doing, finding our only possible transcendence. And second, we come to the crucial revelation detailed description allows and that theoretical systems by their nature must overlook. Detailed description, while making lazy readers cringe, is the writer's best friend, as well as his, her greatest advantage over the philosophical systematizer. It is how the modern novel becomes a philosophically significant epistemic instrument. In my review of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, I noted that Kant and Proust can be understood as complementary opposites of the phenomenological spectrum, and that a fully realized self-understanding must encompass both the stances that they represent. Kant offers the phenomenology of logical principles, Proust the sketch of phenomenological form by which we gain a hold of lived experience. I'd add here that there's simply no philosophical substitute for Proust and for the kind of world disclosure his narrative technique enables. He is a better cartographer of Heidegger's clearing and Husserl's life world than they ever could be, although I deeply admire both. And this is because his literary methodology allows him to scrutinize and lay bare the workings of that fundamental act of reflective thought, description. It goes right to the heart of our moment-to-moment -moment encounter with reality in re-enacting the constructive framing we impose through our descriptions. One has to admire the lucidity and tenacity with which Proust takes up his analytical scalpel to the most indefinite, amorphous phenomena. He is, in my estimation, an indefinite cartographer who charts the limits of representation, and thus, of our capacity for lucidity and meaning. To define and articulate the undefinable details of lived experience, while foregrounding the constructive nature of all such articulation, definition, and cognitive framing, is both his, insane, narrative task and greatest epistemic achievement. Relish a densely descriptive paragraph of his, say, of a summer field, or of the subtly shifting feel of the atmosphere and mood change of a room as different personages enter and exit. Countless pages meticulously render articulate what we usually allow to fester untapped in the margins of liminal awareness, through synesthetic descriptions that try to recapture the comprehensive feel of the mingling of shades at twilight, of the shifting of air currents, of the interpenetration of music and scent, and then of the pain of lack running through it all, of never attaining some culminating state of sufficiency. For my own part, Far from having to strain to appreciate the descriptive passages, I find they provide meditative exercise that gives me the tools to better bring my day-to-day -day experiences to articulate clarity, instead of lazily allowing them to glide past.
In doing so, they intensify my capacity for awareness and presence in the world. Both cognitive form and narrative technique here are opened up to their widest capaciousness and plasticity in order to incorporate not only dramatic action, but its peripheral reverberation, not only central figure but its background of embeddedness, not only words but their echoes, too. I feel more alive after reading Proust, more present to my experiences, and more ashamed at how much of my life I let slip by me each and every day. The perspective the narrator achieves over his life here makes our usual biographical sense seem botched and anemic. In comparison, it seems like we have scarcely deigned to show up for our life story much at all. Instead of integrating and transcending in a moment of lucidity that surpasses our highest attained perspectival unity, as the narrator does at the culmination of the narrative when the various strands somehow coalesce, we just let it all slip by, rush on to the next thing, and through this habit enacted out of laziness, skim through our lives without delving deeper into the mystery they disclose. Experience washes over us and past us, leaving us untransformed and not building up to a unity, which is indeed wholly ours. His analysis of the pervasiveness of habit as our substitute for awareness here is sobering. Most of our faculties lie dormant because they can rely upon habit, which knows what is to be done and has no need of their services. He shows how through it, we fall back on prematurely fossilized interpretive structures, our personality, and fail to rise up to the task of continuing to develop resources for gathering meanings as they continue to unfold and emerge. The entire work seems to urge us to recall that psychological maturation, unlike physical, doesn't occur automatically or is finished once and for all at a specific moment in time after puberty. It ends with death, or with its psychological correlative, the death we experience when we opt out of the necessarily ongoing struggle to continue articulating an increasingly integrative perspective on our lives. Premature unity is psychological death. Through it, our lives become a foreclosed matter. As Beckett notes in his study of Proust, the creation of the world did not take place once and for all time, but takes place every day. The same goes for our own little life world. There is no resting in the process of endless formal development until death because experience never ceases to unfold new capacities for revelation. Our understanding can never rest content with yesterday's story when facing today's experiences. Proust shows us what the stakes for self-knowledge are, and this is as inspiring for us ordinary, barely aware, mortals as it is supremely humbling. And it is enabling, as any creative work should be. It shows the way to greater realization. Like comment likes, 53 comments, 23 Eleanor Bot Stephen wrote, I enjoyed your review. Thank you. So thought inspiring. I'm a clinical social worker by profession and love literature, though I recognize my ability to comprehend it is often limited by my inclinatio. Thank you so much for your comment, Stephen. My own two cents worth is that finding real-world solutions to help people with real-world problems, on the one hand, and delving into the kinds of liminal regions that reflective literature such as that of Proust pushes us into, can be mutually beneficial activities. I recognize, though, what you say when you suggest that in doing the former, 
we often do not get the chance to do much of the latter. I feel the same struggle to remember the things that originally got me going in life, things like really being able to be immersed in Proust's world, even as I now try to solve real problems, although, I imagine, on a much more restricted sphere than you do, since I am not a social worker, I try to get back to the pervasive feelings of warmth and comfort that those things once gave me, but they just recede further and further away. To Stephen Vanek I enjoyed your review. Thank you. So thought-inspiring. I'm a clinical social worker by profession and love literature, though I recognize my ability to comprehend it is often limited by my inclination to rush to conclusions and find fixed answers. I'm guilty of prescribing techniques though in fairness techniques that ideally move one to an expansive, more open and accepting attitude or sensibility. Reading your essay reminded me of the warmth and comfort I used to get in reading Jung and embracing his concept of wholeness. To Eleanor Bott Jessarka, I don't claim to have the answer, and maybe Proust isn't for everyone, though I admit I acknowledge that possibility with great difficulty. I just wanted to point out where one of the key loci of enjoyment was for me. I really dig his style of building up stories out of images that reveal the interiority of the moment or moments of highly concentrated awareness where the whole thread of life seems to shine clear. It is what I like in Wolf's narrative style as well, as I mentioned in my review of The Waves. 5. Elenabot Canal, yours is a life path that is perhaps diametrically opposed to where mine seems to be going. I have started at the other end, with contorted poetics that gesture at the object, but never fully contain it. I am developing more and more of a need for clarity, analysis, and some measure of control in life now. Perhaps we're approaching the point of balance from opposite extremes. Smiley face. I'd be interested to hear how you work things out in your new synthesis. I am happy that I may have happened to gesture to a small piece of the puzzle you also needed. 5. Canal Sen Elena. The clarity of your thoughts and your ability to express them so elegantly astonishes me. I read this book about a year ago, but I have to admit that after reading your analysis, I feel like reading it again, which may never happen, as it seems I didn't read it closely enough. I have lived most of my life as a scientist and a technologist, thus developing a habit of being analytical and trying to put everything in comfortable boxes. I tried doing that with my life as well, but with a lifetime of personal experience, and many lifetimes of borrowed experiences from fictional lives I have read, I finally admitted defeat. In the last five years my main focus has been making art where I still try to understand my life, but without any expectation or desire to form a theory of everything. My current project deals with many of the questions you have raised here, so thank you. 5. Jessarka Elena wrote, Thank you Jessarka. I read this for the first time during my late teens and it made a deep impression on me, on the way I see things, even on the way that I have come to express myself, it may be la. Thanks for the advice. I see it as a simple story. Others see it way differently. I have a book of lectures or whatever it is, on this book, and maybe it will help. 5. Eleanor Bott Thank you Jessarka. I read this for the first time during my late teens and it made a deep impression on me, on the way I see things, even on the way that I have come to express myself, 
It may be largely from reading Proust that I acquired my aforementioned ponchon for convoluted floweriness of expression. I hope it grows on you. The one way I can think of gaining some entry into the Proustian style is to dwell closely on the images, and to really try to enter the moment they depict. Otherwise, the verbosity becomes excruciatingly tedious. 5. Jessarka If you saw what I had planned for a review of this book, you would laugh. I am struggling through it and rather hate all but the first 14 pages. Your review is masterful. 5. Elenabot Sir am I, Manny, Sir am I lol. Thank you for your encouraging words though. Smiley face. Manny Elena, you seem to be moving in a promising direction. I'm curious to see what happens next smiley face. Ted Elena, your wonderful review is now bookmarked underscore here underscore and underscore here underscore. Manny this essay, I hesitate to say, review, makes some very interesting points, both about the essentially philosophical nature of Proust's novel and about its uniqueness. I'm pretty much in agreement about the philosophy. I've also had thoughts in this direction, though I haven't formulated them nearly as precisely as you have here. With regard to uniqueness, I'm surprised to see how few books I'm able to think of which do something similar. In fact, I can only come up with two, Heisman's as a Rebors, Against Nature, and the trilogy by Jan K. J. Estad, which starts with 4-4 Aaron, The Seducer, it's an extremely hard thing even to attempt. You should develop this further, Eleanor Botha. Thank you, Chris for bringing Proust himself as an added rationalization for my self-indulgently subjective approach. Winking face. And I love the optical theme running throughout the work, and that you're bringing up here again. There's the magic lantern condition we inhabit, but that we, due to our capacity for reifying our constructs, fail to recognize as such. And then there's the added clarity and lucidity a great work of literature affords us over this whole panoply of projected fairy tale images, which is as close to truth and transcendence of our ordinary mind mirage as we can hope to get. Fantastic quote you mind there. It captures really well the sense of the work as aid to meditation and to an integrative act by which we achieve a perspective that transcends the usual magic lantern. The author lays a schema of the process out for you, but it is the reader who must activate it and use the work as a ladder to the higher perspective. It is because of this that such wisdom cannot be dished out ready-made on a platter for us, in the form of some perfect system or dogma, but must be attained through personal struggle for perspectival mastery. This would be the case, I think, even if humankind someday achieved the means to complete a great scientific theory of truly everything. Chromus I believe there should always be a place for what it feels like to be the reader when we communicate the experience of having read something, and not only if this experience stimulated a perceptible change in one's knowledge of oneself. Such an embodied reportage, planted proudly in the soil of subjectivity, might be a missing ingredient in persuading more people to pick up books, though if I'd known what it felt like to read Kant before reading Kant, I might have preferred to sit in front of a mirror-plucking nasal hair's winking face. Every reader, as he reads, is actually the reader of himself. The writer's work is only a kind of optical instrument he provides the reader so he can discern what he might never have seen in himself without this book.
The reader's recognition in himself of what the book says is the proof of the book's truth. What a wonderful insight this is from, Time Regained. Proust is working his way along the conveyor of my bookshelf. When his moment comes, you can bet your ass I'll be sending you long emails smiley face. Eleanor Bot Chris, thanks once again for your kind response. I cannot vouch for accuracy either, in this case or with regards to any of the reviews I write on here. I guess ultimately that is because it is not my aim to strive for an accurate, comprehensive grasp of these works. I am aiming for something far more self-indulgently subjective. I wish to explicate what these works mean to me, and how they have changed me, and enabled me to more fully live my life. I am a bit sick of academic, formal writing at the moment, and this is my temporary reprieve from it. I am tired of the feigning of impersonality that is enforced on us by those modes of writing and of thought. This impersonality drains the very life force of these works, I find, by not allowing us to deal with just the kind of personal difference they can make in our most intimate dealings with our world. I wish instead to gauge the life content of these great works, as I feel it in my own experience, at least. I'd be curious to see your take on Proust, but I understand that the flow of life is relentless and doesn't allow us as much room for free exploration as we'd wish, and as a result every person must identify their own priorities. Proust isn't necessarily as prominent on other people's life maps as he might be on mine. Yes, I try very hard to persuade myself to accept this, XD. Chromis while, having not read the book in question, I cannot comment on the accuracy of your analysis, I can certainly enjoy the passion and the clarity with which you elucidate the richness of the insight it has offered you. In particular the idea of literature as guided meditation, a call to awake, resonates deeply. Work by Neruda and Marquez provide at the least a window onto the promise of experience, if not quite the means by which one might climb through it. I'm also grateful to note cross-reference with your CPR review after having had my curiosity stimulated by your decision to place Proust and Kant at opposite ends of a phenomenological continuum. I see now why you have done so. Perhaps one day I will have something worthwhile to say on Proust. In the interim, I wish to thank you for being consistently enlightening, honest, open and articulate with your reviews. Gun world are, but I take it very seriously, as it is not simply superficial glee, dot but a deep and profound joy. I think you are the only person in the world that could inspire me to read such an intimidatingly enormous project like, Lost Time. It's gonna take years, but Proust is so unlike any other authors, perhaps somewhat wolfish, that reading him seems necessary. Smiley face, Eleanor Bot Gunn, thank you as always for your friendship and the unwavering support that you have given me throughout these years and continue to give. It has strengthened me, and I would probably still be in a heap of self-pity without it. I am sure you recognize though that a lot of the insights here have their genesis in discussions with you. Those discussions have been some of the most formative events of my life. And the Apex cheerleader stuff is bull, you know that, p. Gun world my hope is that you will expand on this Elena. And eventually publish. It is wonderfully written and will probably launch an exciting, interesting and fruitful career. 
You have a very keen insight, incomparable vision and splendid wordsmithery. I am looking forward to following your career, and remaining the Apex cheerleader. Winking face. Eleanor Bot Stephen, I don't know how to thank you for the freely bestowed kindness and generosity you have shown me. I don't often see this in people, never mind being on the receiving end. It has inspired me and given me hope that people can share their insights on this level, and find through this sharing some kindred spirits who will resonate with one's own deepest struggles for clarity. I think that perhaps the saddest thing about life is that we seldom can share the thoughts by which we truly live. We must keep them sealed inside ourselves, our communications barely scraping the surface of the deeper, pain and wisdom buried inside us all. And I am also thankful because your insightful comment has further clarified for me what most moved me in Proust's message, and what I was straining to articulate for years, although never finding satisfaction with my own attempts. The lifelong task with no end, puts it well, as well as the notion of self-constructed funnels that wall us into a self-built prison which we struggle to escape so that we may lie in the light of day for a single instant, while simultaneously huddling for the ambiguous security the walls provide. Your understanding of the way to a meaningful life in spite of the only truth available in this world, death, is also enabling. Truth and knowledge aside, I agree with Milos that a creative work must always in the end be on the side of life. It must, in other words, provide the kind of meaning generating knowledge on which we can build a life. Your formulation is in this life-affirming spirit, and articulates the foundational insights on which the creative life is based. Thanks once again.